As you're taking your seats, go ahead and open your Bibles up to James chapter 4. While we've been uh, over the course of the past several months going through this letter of James, this book written by the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ himself to the the church, the, the Christians who have been scattered from their homes out of Jerusalem because of the persecution that has had arisen from the, the hand of the Jews. They were um, made to just flee everything and, and go to what James calls the dispersion. And he writes this, this earliest book in the New Testament to encourage them and, and to call them to live according to the Word of God. And as I was studying this week, it, it struck me several times uh, just the unity of the Bible. Again, I love, I love to connect the dots in Scripture and, and see how one book relates to another and how, how one person in the plan and program of God relates to another person in, in biblical history and redemptive history. And, and what I saw this week is, is so many uh, links to what we've just been recently seeing in the book of Acts, chapters 1 and 2. We see in um, Acts chapter 2, we, we, we saw recently that Peter preached the gospel in Jerusalem and 3,000 souls believed and were baptized and were added to the number. And as I thought about that, I thought about what happens later on in, in Acts, what we'll see in just a few short chapters when the persecution begins to come down upon them and, and they're, they're scattered out around the stoning of Stephen. And I thought, you know, it's probably very, very likely, we, we can't be certain, but probably extremely likely that some of the original recipients of this letter that James wrote were numbered among those 3,000 that gave their life to Christ that day when Peter preached the gospel in Jerusalem. And he writes to them, and, and, and he writes in many ways to tell them, your faith is going to be tested. As you're, as you're out in the world, as you're living amongst the people who hate God and, and who do not want to hear about the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, your faith is going to be tested in many ways. And, and we've seen that and we've, we've framed it, if you will, over a series of questions that, that we've been confronted with from the text. We've looked at, at questions like, how do you respond to trials in James chapter 1? We looked at, at the question, is your life directed by the Word of God? Is your life guided and directed by the Word of God? James confronts us with in this letter. Are, are good works evident in your life? Not, not, as, not as the means by which you're saved, but as the evidence that you have been saved. We, we've asked, is your tongue under control? Where does your wisdom come from? We, we've asked, are you friends with the world and now this morning we're faced with yet another question, beginning in James 4.13, and, and this morning we're going to look at the question, how do you view time and eternity? How do you view time and eternity? How one looks at the passing of days and months, even years in this world, how, how one understands the things that are seen and, and the realities of the things that are not seen with the human eye, how one perceives the ultimate purpose of our existence and the culmination of life as we know it on this earth really helps to shape and define one's worldview, one's system of faith. This is true for, for any faith, whether it's, whether it's um, Judaism or Islam or, 
or Hinduism or even atheism has, has a response, has a, has a view of time and eternity. And so too it is with the Christian. As followers of Jesus Christ, Christians are driven to see time and eternity in a certain light. And yet, I, to be truthful, I'm concerned and, and I believe that James in, in this text before us shows great concern as well that when it comes to time and eternity, our perspective can be influenced by the thinking of the world. Our perspective on time and eternity can be shaped sometimes by the thinking of this world. And so we need to look to the Word of God to keep us on course. Our understanding of where we are and what we're doing at any given time is sometimes painfully obvious at times, right? Like we look around, we see each other right now on Sunday morning sitting in these chairs in this school and we know it's Sunday morning, right? That just comes. We, we know when it's daytime because the sun is shining. We know when it's nighttime because it's dark outside. We know when it's summertime and when winter is upon us. These things you might say are, are obvious. They're, they're no-brainers to us. But let me ask you this. Is it just as plainly apparent in your day-to-day life that this world and everything in it, everything you see, everything you, you hear, everything you taste, smell, touch, the plans that you make, the money that is or isn't in your bank account, your very body itself is temporary and passing away. Is that part of your normal, common thinking in your day-to-day lives? Do you think and act regularly as though this world is not your home? That's what we're faced with this morning in James 4.13 and going into chapter 5. Time and history are passing by. And eternity with Jesus Christ is on the horizon. This is what James wants to influence our thinking with this morning. From a few different angles, he wants to persuade his readers to hold on to a Christian perspective, a Christ-centered perspective on time and eternity. Let's begin reading in chapter 4, verse 13. The Word of God says this, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Here we see first that a biblical view of time and eternity says this, I'm committed to God's plans, not my plans. God's plans, not my plans. A biblical perspective on time and eternity recognize very quickly that I'm not holding the pencil in the official drawings of my life. And yet, James warns that there's a danger in the heart of man that creeps in and declares, I'll decide where I want to go. I'll decide when I leave. I'll decide how long I'll stay. I'll decide what I do when I get there. And I'll decide what the outcome's going to be of it all. 
These, these individuals that James is identifying here, they presume that, that the whole year is at their disposal to use as they decide. Everything's settled. Arrangements have been made. The schedule's filled in. The agenda's in order. But what was missing? They left God out of it. Right? They left God out of it. There's been no thought to their dependence upon the Lord. When we act and, and live as though we were sovereign over our own lives, really what we're doing is we're, we're, we're living as though we were practical atheists, as though God didn't really exist in our thinking. This is, we need to be clear, this is not a rebuke against planning. This is not a rebuke against even making a profit. What James is addressing here is arrogance in our ability to determine the course of future events in our lives. He says, you don't know. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. Only God knows. One writer says it this way. He says, man's own way is a way devised by human weakness and folly. It is impossible to make a solid road out of such frail materials. I thought that was so good. I, I saw that this week in a commentary on the, on the Proverbs. I was looking at Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21 that says this, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. We can, we can plan and scheme and think about what we're going to do in the future all we want, but ultimately, it's the plans of the Lord that will prevail. Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 25 the Lord declares through the prophet, he says, I am the Lord. I will speak the word that I will speak and it will be performed. We see collectively across the pages of Scripture that God is the one who is in charge of the course of human history, not ourselves. And perhaps the most personal place we see this is in Psalm 139. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 139. I want all of us to see this with our eyes this morning. Psalm 139 and verse 16. Here it's David writing. He's talking about the, the, the unsearchable wisdom of God, that the knowledge of God, how he, he knows every bit of us, every thought we have. He knows where we are at all times. He knows every word before it's even on our tongue. And then in verse 16, listen, listen to what the psalmist says. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. When we were still in our, inside of our mother's womb, the Lord knew every day of our lives before we were even born. We don't even know how long our lives on earth are going to last. James tells us at the end of verse 14 that we're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Here one minute and then gone the next. There's an uncertainty to life that renders us foolish to imagine that we're in charge of it all. Yet it's possible, it's possible that in planning for our future, we sidestep God. We leave Him out of it 
We, we don't seek His purposes and, and His will. We don't surrender. We, right, we hold on to our plans with a tight fist like this when really all of Scripture screams at us, open up your hand. Give it to me. James says we can't leave God out of it. In our planning, we have to say, if the Lord wills. So that's it. End, end of the point. Just make sure you say, Lord willing, at the end of everything you say, and we're good. We're good to go. I'm just, I'm just joking. It's okay to say, Lord willing, but it has to be from the heart. We have to mean it. And even if we don't say it, it has to be in the heart. Lord willing has to be our mantra. It, it has to be when we plan for our future that we say, I'm not in charge here. This is, this is what I'm planning. This is what I believe is going to honor the Lord. But ultimately, I'm leaving it in his hands. I'm leaving it up to him. Complete surrender. Not a magical formula, but an attitude of complete surrender in all our strategies and planning in life. Listen, brothers and, and sisters, we know that it's not a well-thought-out plan that matters most to God, but resolute trust in him. Trust in the Lord trumps plans. And, and we didn't see this in any greater way than in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of John chapter 6 when Jesus tells his hearers, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. In every area of Jesus' life, he was surrendered. He went to places that the Father wanted him to go. He said the words that the Father wanted him to speak. And this took great humility. Great humility. It's the humble, it's the humble who are able to recognize and acknowledge that God is in charge and not me. It's the proud who exhibit self-willed independence. See, arrogance is the problem here. That's what we see in verse 16. James says, the one who plans his own way without consideration for the Lord's plans boast in their arrogance and all such boasting is evil. All such boasting is evil. Is, you ask, is all, isn't all boasting evil? No. That, that kind of boasting is evil, but there is a boasting that honors the Lord. You remember Jeremiah chapter 29? The Lord, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, says this, he says, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom and let not a mighty man boast in his might and let not a rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this. See, it's okay to boast. That he understands and knows me. That's what we're to boast in. And we know the Lord. That, he says that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness on the earth. It's in this that I delight. See, there is a boasting that the Lord delights in. And, and, and on the other side of the cross, we, we boast in a way that even Jeremiah the prophet didn't know to boast. We boast not in gifts, right? We sing a song about this. No gifts, no power. I won't boast in wisdom, but I will boast in who? Come on. Jesus Christ. I will boast in Jesus Christ. Jesus is our boast. The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who is the glorious Lord of heaven, who came down to earth to seek and to save the lost, to pay the penalty for our sins, 
to lay down his life as a ransom for many, to, to rise from the grave that we might have eternal life if we place our faith and trust in him. That's our boast. Our boast is Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Not in our ability to plan our own future. You might be thinking, well, I, would, I don't boast in my arrogance. Like, hey, look, look how arrogant I am. Isn't it great? You know, like I can plan my future and I don't need God. We, most of us probably, likely, don't go around saying that to one another. But, but when we sidestep God, that might be happening in our hearts. And, and, and we normally think, right, we normally think that sin is a matter of commission. Commission, and, and that means doing the things that God has told us not to do. And, th- and that's sin, for sure, right? God tells us what not to do, and, and when we do it, that's sin. That's a sin of commission. But listen, there's, a, there's another sin, and it's the sin of omission. The sin of omission, that's, that's when God tells us what to do, and we just don't do it. And I think f- uh, far more often than the sins of commission, the sins of omission get lost on us, And yet James here in verse 17 reminds us, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, that's still sin. And I think that comes on the heels of what he's been talking about here in regards to planning our own lives to the neglect of involving God in our plans to say, listen, you know, you know you need to include the Lord. You you need to seek his will, not your will. And if you don't do that, even if if your plans aren't sinful, even if your plans are are righteous in and of themselves, or or maybe maybe just amoral, right? There's nothing wrong or or right about them. If you leave God out of it, he says, that's sin. That's sin. I want you to think this morning, what are are you planning in your life? What, What is it that is on the horizon for you. Maybe it's a career, maybe it's a graduation from school, maybe it's a spouse. I don't know what it is, but, but you know in your heart what it is you're, you're planning towards. And, and I just encourage you this morning, examine your own heart. Are, are you surrendered to the Lord's will or are you pretty, pretty firm that you know how it's all going to go? We need to trust in the Lord. That's what Proverbs Chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, familiar to many of us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. That is an awesome verse, and I'm sure that some of the people that James was writing to it had, them, had this verse on their coffee mug too. <laughs> but it has, to, it has to go deep into our hearts. It has to be the way we think about time and eternity to acknowledge Him in all our understanding, in all our ways. See, it's, impo- it's entirely possible that we could come here on Sunday mornings in this you know, more formal environment for worship and surrender to the Lord, express our dependence on Him, only then to leave this place and totally disregard Him in the relentless pursuits of our daily lives. So we need to remember that the days of our existence on this earth are in God's hands, not ours. We don't need to know the future in order to be content in this life. Everything doesn't have to go our way because we can rest knowing that it's going God's way. I thought this week, think, think of your life up until this point. Where you've been, you know, your experiences, where, who, who you've interacted with, what, what 
has happened in your life up until today from the time you were born, and you can be certain as you look back that that was God's plan for your life. That was by design. Now God uh, works through the means of our choices for sure. But, but God has numbered our days. Now the difference between looking backwards and looking forward is this. We don't know yet, right? There's uncertainty in the future, but we can be sure of this. That God's plans will prevail. Everything doesn't have to go the way that we thought maybe they were going to go because it's God's plans that count, not my plans. Next, a biblical perspective of time and eternity says this. God's glory, not my glory. I'm committed to God's glory, not my own. Another failure in acknowledging that we live in God's world is to live under the illusion that our greatest joy comes in earthly possessions. So for our benefit, James next gives us a window into what one who is far from God needs to hear. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, he's going to address wealth and he's going to address selfishness and injustice and judgment. And he's going to Help us to see what the wicked rich, not all rich are wicked, that's not what he's saying, that's not what I'm saying, but the wicked rich, what they need to hear. Look with me, chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Just like planning in and of itself isn't sin. It's not sinful to be wealthy. It's not sin to have a lot of money and possessions. What is sinful is is to have a perspective on wealth as though it's the be-all and end-all in life. As, As though the mighty dollar was something to be loved and cherished and sought after above anything else. That's when it becomes a problem. And in our culture, amassing vast riches is, is not only accepted, right? it's actually admired. We are um, very much confronted with the question, are we seeking our own glory in this life? Or are we seeking God's glory? And like an Old Testament prophet, James comes and he pronounces woes on the wicked rich. Often the wicked rich are condemned in Scripture. Not because of the fact that they're rich, but because of the way that they've been treating other people. God's anger is aroused. Listen, God's anger is aroused when the poor are plundered. Just as our very lives are fading away. We need to remember, so too are riches fleeting away. If, if all you care about is how much money you have, which is evident with, with these folks here, 
then, then it is clear that only here and now actually matters to you. See how this connects to an eternal perspective? In the day of judgment, all earthly treasure will lose its value. The man who puts all his hope and joy into temporary riches will find that these things turned out to only really be worthless at the end of it all. Their corroded gold will be exhibit A in God's courtroom as, as if to hold, he's going to hold up the plastic bag of evidence. Right? And inside is this corroded, rusty gold. And he says, you put your hope in this? This is where you found your joy? This is what you thought was eternal? And then he's going to pronounce this judgment. Your, your very flesh will likewise corrode. You too will rust by fire. I was reading this section this week and I couldn't help but to think of Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount, which is often the case, as we've seen in the book of James. Again, we see just another very close connection in James' writing to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, that's when he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. These fools that James writes about, they refuse to view time and eternity through God's lens. At the end of chapter 3, we see the words again that we just again saw in Acts chapter 2, the last days. The last days. We know, and James knew, that these people here, as well as ourselves, are living in the last days. We're living between the time of Jesus' ascension and His coming back in glory. These are the last days, and yet that is not recognized by these wicked rich men. He says, you're storing up treasures here and now, and, and you have no perception at all of the return of Jesus Christ. They're living here and now, as each day comes closer and closer to the approaching judgment. I love how another English translation translates this. It says, you have laid up treasure in an age that is near its close. Listen, may we not be like them. Consider your own heart this morning and, and your view of wealth, your, your view of, of money. Is it, is it engulfing your perspective of, of God and His coming judgment? John MacArthur says this, he says, Nothing more clearly reveals the state of a person's heart than his view of money and material possessions. Many who profess faith in Christ invalidate their claim to genuine saving faith through their opulent, indulgent, materialistic lifestyles. A clear indication that they serve wealth, not God. It's my prayer that this would not be any of us, this morning. And yet, if it is, may God's grace be upon us to, to show us if, if we are serving money, if we are serving the, the, the gold, the treasures of this earth instead of God and seeking His glory. Especially in view here is, is, is the, the oppression of the poor. Look at verse 4 again. 
James says that the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvest, harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Not only do they hoard riches for their own personal magnificence, for their own glory, but they do this by abusing other people. God hates this. God absolutely hates this. In the beginning of the scriptures, in the first five books of the Bible, we, we receive the law of God. Moses receives it and gives it to the people. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 14, God says through Moses, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Fast forward hundreds of years now to the very last book in the Old Testament. The prophet Malachi writes in chapter 3, verse 5, on behalf of God, he says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And here's how we can be absolutely certain that this is tied to one's eternal perspective. God says, And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The cries of the oppressed don't reach the ears of the oppressors, but they do reach the ears of God. God sees and hears everything that's going on, every moment. As you think about time in this world, there isn't a second that goes by that God is not intimately aware of in your life. And James says that the cries of both the wages themselves and the laborers ascend to heaven's throne. Reminds me of the time when, when God told Cain, the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. God sees it all. What the rich think that they do in secret and without danger of prosecution is not hidden from the Lord Almighty. James calls the Lord here the Lord of hosts. I think it's interesting that he chose that title in this particular place. The Lord of hosts conveys God as the captain of the heavenly armies. The one who reigns and rules over all powers, who's coming to judge heaven and earth. He's the one who sees what the rich are doing, and he's the one who condemns them for living on this earth. See that in verse 5? You have lived on this earth in luxury and in self indulgence. If luxury and self-indulgence is your highest aim, then James says what you're doing is you're fattening yourself for the day of slaughter. The judge is coming, and you're just getting ready for his judgment. Remember the rich man that Jesus talks about who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who fasted sumptuously, it says? And, and outside of this rich man's gate, there, there lay this this beggar, this poor man named Lazarus. And a day came when 
both of them met their end. And, and Lazarus, he went to be with the Lord in heaven. And, and this rich man, he, he went down and he ascended to hell. And he's having this, this conversation. And he, he wonders, like, what's going on here? And it was declared to him, on earth you received your full. See, all he cared about was earth. All he cared about was his material possessions. And he came to find out that in the end, there's a great reversal. If all you care about is your own glory in this life, you'll never know the glory of the Lord in the next. Our time here is coming to an end. We are, day by day, getting closer and closer to the end of days and we don't want to be like this man. Jesus tells of a, of a man who says to his own soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God says to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Listen, because I love you this morning, I, I have to say that, that if you are placing your hope in your own glory, then you're a fool. You're a fool. That's what the Bible says. Don't, don't be a fool. Seek His glory. Seek His glory. And... and be content to, to put your glory off to the side. There's a day of judgment coming. This is what needs to be on the forefront of our view of time and eternity. There's a time coming when those who have lived for God's glory here on this earth will stand before His glorious throne, clothed in a robe of righteousness, not our own, full of glory, and we will, we will see Him for who He is. And this is the greatest joy. This is the perspective that James calls us to. I was reading just this morning in my Bible time in John, the Gospel of John, that's where I'm at right now, and, and in chapter 12, chapter 12 comes right after chapter 11. Chapter 11 is when Lazarus, was the other Lazarus in Scripture, right? He was raised from the dead. And, it, and I've been captivated by the beginning of chapter 12 where it says, and Jesus went to dinner at the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus was there. I think, wow, that, that can be so easily glanced over. But I stop and pause and think, he was dead yesterday. And today he's eating a meal with Jesus Christ. And I couldn't help but to think of my own life and see the spiritual correlation there of, of how I've been raised from the dead, spiritually speaking, and I look forward to the day when I will sit at the Lord's table with him in glory. That, that's our greatest hope. Amen? Amen. Sometimes, sometimes it's going to mean suffering on this earth. Let's look again at verse 6 before moving on to our next point. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The righteous man is innocent in the matter having done nothing to deserve such treatment and even though sentenced to suffer by the greedy man, treated in such a way as to be deprived of his very life, he does nothing in return to retaliate. If not 
literally, metaphorically speaking. The rich man has, has condemned and murdered the righteous person. He's deprived him of, of his sustenance, his daily bread. And yet James says, the righteous one didn't resist you. He didn't resist you. See, a biblical perspective of time and eternity is committed, yes, to God's plans, not my plans. God's glory, not my glory. But also to God's way and not my way. As servants of Christ, we're called to handle the difficulties encountered in this life with our eyes fixed on the next. Look with me at verse 7. James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers. And here we know he's, he's addressing the Christians again. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the earth and late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Be patient. Be patient. Be patient, James says. Like the persevering farmer waiting for the harvest to come in, so too the Christian must be patient, waiting for the coming of the Lord. I said earlier that we don't need to know the future in order to be content in this life, right? Well, that's true. But on the other hand, it's also altogether true that we do know the future. Jesus is coming back. That is the greatest future we could possibly know, and it's certain. The word used uh, here in this verse, in verse 7, for coming of the Lord, this is, this is one that is so uh, pregnant in, in meaning. We could actually think of reading it like this. Be patient for His arriving to be present with His people. Isn't that awesome? Listen, we need to remember, we need to live as though this is true. Over 500 times in this book that we hold in our hands, the return of Jesus Christ is, is talked about, is taught about, is written of. It's a, it's a theme of Scripture from beginning to end that the, the Lord of glory is coming to redeem His people. Jesus talked about this. He said the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. He says they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He says you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Again, 
reminded of, of what we saw just recently in Acts chapter 1 as Jesus ascended into the clouds and the, the angel showed up and said to his disciples, don't worry, he's coming back in just the same way you saw him go up. Be patient. This is our charge. Wait for his coming. Establish your hearts, James says. Fortify your mind with the truth of his return. The day of the Lord is on its way. But it's not here yet. It's not here yet, so we need to be patient. That's God's way. I was um, on my computer this week, and a blog post came through uh, from Al Mohler. And uh, in the title, it, it, I don't remember the title, I didn't write it down, it's, it's, but it was about patience. And I thought, how timely is this this week that I would see this come through? So I opened up right away. I wanted to read it and see what it said. And, and it was as if we could have just taken this, this next paragraph that I'm going to share with you, and, and it could have just been talking directly about our passage this morning. I love how God does that. He writes this, The Bible's understanding of patience as a Christian virtue is rooted in the totality of Christian truth. Patience begins with the affirmation that God is sovereign and in control of human history, working in human lives. With eternity on the horizon, time takes on an entirely new significance. The Christian understands that full satisfaction will never be achieved in this life, but he looks to the consummation of all things in the age to come. That's patience. A biblical understanding of time tells us, listen, this is simple, but it's so profound, tells us that we are living right now our lives in a time prior to the return of Jesus Christ. Is that on the forefront of your mind day to day? You know, in, in many senses, I don't care that we're living in 2015. I don't care that it's the 21st century. I don't care that it's a, I don't know, it's just the technological era, whatever it is. However we want to describe the world we live in right now, let's describe it first and foremost of this, the day we're waiting for Jesus to come back and he's not here yet. That needs to be our perspective of time and eternity. And as I was studying patience this week, I thought, well, uh, what's the opposite of patience that might help me and help us to better understand what's going on here? And, and obviously it's impatience, right? And I thought, okay, impatience is one of those words that's kind of sometimes hard to define where you can't, where you feel like you have to use the word itself in the definition, like impatience. Well, that's being not patient. So I typed in impatience and I, and I opened it up in my dictionary. I just wanted to see what, what is, um, the English language experts have to say about impatience. And you want to know what the first thing to come up under impatience? Annoyed at waiting. Annoyed at waiting. Okay, that's, that's good. Listen, let's consider that in light of what we're waiting for. Are we annoyed at waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? As if our way was better than His way? Of course we want Him to come now. But we need to be content with His way. And His way is patience. But, but when is He coming, you ask? We don't know. We don't know. This, this is an undated event. His coming is the next scheduled event on the timeline of biblical history, of redemptive history, and yet we do not know when that day will come. Only the Father in heaven knows. There's a tension 
in this verse as, as in all of Scripture. On one hand, James says, be patient. Be like the farmer who waits for the season to come in. And then on the other hand, he says, the Lord's coming is at hand. The judge is standing right at the door. And listen, both are true. Both are true. We need to embrace this tension and, and say, we're going to be ready, as, as Jesus so often taught in his parables, we're going to be ready if he comes tonight, but we're also going to be ready if we need to be patient and he doesn't come for a while. No one knows the day or the hour, but his way is patience. Verse 9 is uh, an interesting one. All of, all of the sudden, as if maybe out of the blue, it seems as though James says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door, and so we're forced to ask ourselves, why would he write that at this point in his letter? Why, why he's talking about patience, 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 wait, the Lord's coming, and then all of a sudden do not grumble against one another. And it may seem a little bit out of place, and yet as we think about it, I, I think it, it would do us well to think in these terms. Listen, when you're so desperately wanting what you want, when you so desperately want things to go your way and they don't, who are you most likely to take out your frustration upon? Is it those you love the most? Is it those that you spend the most time with? I think that's what James is getting at here. Listen, when we're doing things the Lord's way and we're being patient and, and we, we think that maybe the Lord is delayed in our own perspective or in our own sense of timing, are we tempted then to, to lash out and to speak against one another? James says, don't do that. Don't do that. The judge is standing at the door. Verse 12, you look down at verse 12, similarly, this may seem as though it's out of place. James says, Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Why all of a sudden, in a section on patience and suffering and steadfastness and, and being reminded of the coming of the Lord, does he all of a sudden say, be careful with your oath-taking? Again, it might seem at first glance to be out of place, but I think there's a good reason why James puts this here in his letter as we're considering an eternal perspective. To take an oath was to attest that what one said was true. To call on God as witness to that and to invoke punishment on oneself if one's word was violated. That's what it means to take an oath. And, and just like planning for the future and, and just like having material possessions, taking an oath in and of itself isn't sinful. We know that because, because God swore by his own name. God took an oath. The Apostle Paul, he, he took oaths sometimes. The, the point is this, we, we don't need to go around making it our habit to, to offer up oath after oath. You, you know, I had this friend, he would just all, all the time, I swear on my mother's grave this and I swear on my mother's grave that and, and you just can't help but to think, you're a liar, why do you feel like you need to convince me all the time that you're telling the truth? That's what James is saying here. Be, be marked by integrity and by honesty and by keeping your word. This isn't about when we, if we're ever called into a courtroom whether or not it's right for a Christian to put his hand and swear by oath 
That's not what this is addressing. This is, this is saying keep your word in the face of adversity. When you're charged to be patient because you're waiting for the coming of the Lord, don't swerve from your resolution to be honest and to keep your integrity. Don't be like the rich man, right, who held back the, the wages of his laborers. I think when, when it comes to being impatient and wanting to alleviate suffering, that's when we might be tempted to go back on our word, right? I think, I think that's why this is included here. It was commonplace in James's day. The Jews were taking advantage of, of oaths and, and they, they had this system where they could craftily give this oath that really sounded polished and good on the outside, but, but it left them a little loophole. Right? As, as if they were you know, crossing their fingers behind their back. That's what James is talking about here. Don't be like that. Don't hide the truth. And then he gives a stern warning. He says, so that you may not fall under condemnation. We say, well, I thought James was talking about Christians here and and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And of course, that's true. And so how do we see this? Well, I think it's twofold. One, there is a judgment coming for all of us. There is a day of reckoning when we will stand before the Lord and He will examine our lives, every, every word we spoke, every deed we did, and that which is good and glorifying to Him will be rewarded and that which is not will just be swept away. And, and we don't want our actions, our behaviors, our thoughts to be part of that second category. But in an altogether, in an altogether other sense, there is a, a warning here. Remember the book of James, the testing of your faith. Some believers are going to fail the test and, and prove to not actually be believers. And, and th- that's where the stern warning comes in. Listen, there is a judgment. There is condemnation. And so if the pattern of your life looks like an unbeliever, you need to really question the sincerity of your faith. That's what we're confronted with in the book of James. God's way. Not my way. God's way is to continue in love and integrity, exercising patience until Jesus comes. Even when life here and now is really hard. Look back in verse 10. As he so often does, James gives us some some practical illustrations to think about the truth that he's trying to pound home into our hearts. And he says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He says, we consider them, behold, we consider the, those blessed who remain steadfast. Think about the prophets. They, they came speaking the word of God. They came holding on to the promises of God as though no matter what happened in this life, they trusted Him for their future and they were slaughtered. They were maligned. They were scoffed at. They were killed, son in two. James tells us to remember, remember them when life is hard and we, we find it difficult to be patient. We have examples. He says, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. Many of us know of the story of Job's life, the hardships that he endured. And, and listen, not perfectly was he um, the most perfect, patient man. Only Christ was the most perfect, patient man in the face of adversity. But in the end, Job surrendered 
to the Lord's ways. And he said, not my will, but your will be done. Our present suffering, our present suffering, James is saying, is not the end of the story. If you trust in Christ, God will transform your situation for good when his son is revealed in glory. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is a very, very common description of our great God and Savior in Scripture. He's compassionate and He's merciful. He cares. He really does care about us. I don't know what it is you're going through this morning. I don't know what the difficulties are in your heart. You know that and it's between you and the Lord, but, but I just want to encourage you from the Word of God this morning that He's compassionate and He's merciful. He's a strong tower that we can run into. He is a rock that will never be shaken. And He loves us and cares for us. And He wants us to be patient, to to live life and to view time and eternity His way. Knowing that He rescues the lowly and He knows how to save those who are patiently waiting for Him. His plan is so much greater than our plan. His glory is so much more awesome than our glory. His way is perfect in every way. Let us live out the days of our life on earth knowing, remembering, believing that this world is not our home. Let us have an otherworldliness about us. Jesus is coming back at exactly the right time. Do you believe that? And blessed are those who are waiting for him and delight in his coming.